Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Kimberly Johnson. Kimberly's a trauma educator, somatic guide, yoga teacher, doula, and author. She's also a friend of mine who has taught me so much and has been instrumental in helping me deepen my connection to my body and mind over the years. Kimberly's book is called Call of the Wild. In it, she explores how to navigate our nervous system so that we can embrace the full spectrum of being a human. Today, Kimberly explains her approach from packing what your body is telling you, and particularly what is happening when you're in a state of dysregulation or disconnection. We talk about how to flow through those different states and access your inner wisdom, and why Kimberly believes that sound can be a gentle way to tap into your body. Okay, let's get right to my chat with Kimberly Johnson. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today because we've been friends for a long time and you definitely have been an instrumental part of me deepening my connection with myself and with my body. And I first came to somatic experiencing work through you, through what was a very challenging and scary time in my life where I felt that my nervous system and my felt sense or my consciousness were not in communication. It felt like I was kind of in hyper overdrive and you really came in and this was shortly before my divorce. You came in and really helped give me a new paradigm to see how I was existing in the world. I have so much gratitude for 
that introduction to SE, somatic experiencing, polyvagal theory, all these things that have become just a very important part of my toolkit. But before we dive into all of that, I really would love for you to share with us more about you, you know, for those who are connecting with Kimberly's work for the first time, you're a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga teacher, structural integration practitioner, and you were a doula for a long time. So I'd love to hear what is it about the body that really fascinates you, that draws you in, and, and how do all of those vocations that I just mentioned actually all funnel into each other because I really see them as deeply interconnected but someone might hear sexological body worker and doula how are we negotiating those well for me it feels like each stage of my life I've kind of unzipped a new foundational layer that's led me to the next line of study So first I was a yoga teacher for a long time and I've always been a body person. So I, I skipped a grade in elementary school and I was always known for being intellectual and for being smart, but there was another part of me that didn't feel like it was getting reached there. And so I would dance and I, and I was not coordinated at all when I started doing body things, but there was also this other call for me that I could sense, especially in my dance teachers, like these people know something about the world that my other teachers don't. I could feel it from them. These are wise people. They're not the same as my amazing high school teachers, but they are different in a different way that I'm hugely compelled by. So I became a yoga teacher and I taught yoga full-time for 10 years. And shortly after I started teaching yoga, I got some body work called structural integration. And some people know that as rolfing. And I had that same feeling about the rolfers. Oh, wow. Rolfers know something about the body. They understand it in a way that is fascinating and feels resonant. And so then I went to rolfing school because I thought, okay, if I'm going to be touching bodies a lot and reading bodies, then I should know more about the body. And I went along with those two skill sets for quite some time until I had a baby. And then when I had a baby, every skill that I had kind of went out the window and I had a pelvic floor tear and I wasn't able to heal it quickly. And none of the things that I knew were applying to what I was doing. So the things I thought I should eat weren't helping me. The ways I thought I should exercise weren't helping me. And so that really made me interested because I realized it wasn't a personal problem. And I I went searching on the internet for postpartum care, alternative care, holistic care. And this was 15 years ago now. So we're living in a completely different world when it comes to postpartum care, partially due to the books that you and I wrote. From there, I learned about somatic experiencing about the same time as I got some internal pelvic floor work. And when I learned about somatic experiencing, that's that was the zipper that unlocked oh, that's why yoga works like this. And that's why structural integration works like this. And this is why pranayama or breath work works like this. And then I could just see, oh, this is what I was doing without knowing I was doing it. And now I have an even broader, deeper understanding where I can place these practices. And sexological body work came along because in all those other practices, genitals are separate. So in rolfing, we touch everything, but we don't touch genitals. Uh, In yoga practice, we talk about all the body parts, but we don't really talk about 
anat- sexual anatomy or genital anatomy. And so because I, I then specialized in helping women heal from birth trauma, prepare and recover from gynecological surgeries and help them repair sexual boundary ruptures. I was like, I really need to know this territory, not just structurally, but energetically and fully. And so that's where the sexological body work came in. The doula work snuck on in there because I was living in Rio and I started to work as a medical translator. A lot of the expats who would come to Brazil didn't understand birth practices here. They assumed that the birth practices here would be the same as in every other country, wherever they were from. And so I was helping them try to navigate the system. And then I realized it was, it was wise that I took them through the whole journey and accompanied their birth as a doula. What's a body first nervous system focused approach to healing? I know that's something you speak to. Can you share a little bit about that? Body first is learning how to become a translator of what your body is telling you. So we actually, we need both. We need a bottom up and a top down approach, but a body first approach is understanding that all of the signals that our body is giving us at any given time are in order to keep us safe and to protect us. And the next layer of understanding is if that signal is accurate in the present moment, or if it's something that relates to the past and needs to be renegotiated so that we can become more accurate in the present moment. And when you say accurate in the present moment, what does that look like? Can you share an example of going from not being able to translate what your body is telling you to being able to translate it so clearly that you're in a space of accuracy. Sometimes sexually people have an experience in their present day relationship and in their relationship, in their mind, they feel very open to their partner. They trust their partner. They want to be sexually available to their partner, but they find themselves repeatedly in situations where that's not how their body is acting. They feel when they're actually in the situation that their body does not feel safe. Maybe they can't have an orgasm or maybe they get to one specific position or something and then they start to cry or different kinds of configurations that could happen. And when we learn the tools of how to sift through the way that the outer world is coming into our system. It could be something as simple as just the spatial dynamic of how someone is standing next to you. If you could tell them, you know, when you step to my right and you step behind me, I notice that I shut down and want to move away from you rather than just say, I have low libido or I'm not attracted to you or go down the rabbit hole. And we all have them. We all have these rabbit holes where we're just on that slippery slide and we don't know how we got there. And now we don't know how to get back. But if we are able to slow down and protract things, we can start to observe, oh, it was this tone of voice or it was what happened earlier. Not so that we're hyper-analyzing our life all the time, because I think most of us already are (laughs) pretty good at hyper-analyzing, but so from a moment to moment, perceptive awareness, like an animal, that we would be able to notice, oh, it was this thing that set me in this direction. And now that I know that, I can actually either just change my own position or I can use words to describe how that position feels to me. That's one example. I think another really common example right now that I'm seeing a lot of is just most people have a lot of anxiety right now. And 
that we have a lot of reasons to have anxiety. Anxiety is an incomplete flight response in the nervous system. And flight responses are what happens when you feel helpless or immobilized or trapped, overwhelmed. It can be overwhelmed, although that sometimes goes more towards freeze. So if in the present moment, we're having the feeling like, I can't handle this, I got to get out of here. Um, it could be in a social situation, right? We, we're all having new social situations that we haven't been in in a long time. That we are able to look around, notice where we are, notice that this is perhaps a disproportional response to the current situation we're in, and then make a decision, but not make that mean something about us, not make an idea like, oh, I am whatever ideas people put in their heads, we get in our heads about who we are because of how we are. And so to me, it brings us to a deeper level of self-trust and a deeper level of self-forgiveness, because rather than just acting as if our capacity is a certain way, we respect the capacity that we have. And we also share that with the people that love us. We share that with the people that share space with us so that they can also help us to honor what our real capacity in the moment is. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb. Dot com slash host. So let's talk a little bit about capacity and going past our capacity, which some people and definitely within the framework of somatic experiencing is seen as dysregulation or feeling dysregulated, which is a word I'm often gripping onto, especially going into these like new social situations and trying to figure out, you know, where I am and and what feels comfortable. Can you talk about dysregulation? And also you mentioned freeze a few moments ago. Can you set that up for folks, just the difference between fight or flight and freeze and what dysregulation can look like? So most of us learned when we learned about the nervous system that the sympathetic system is bad because that's fight or flight. And the parasympathetic system is good because that's rest or digest. But when we learned more about the nervous system, which happened in the mid nineties, when Porges created the polyvagal theory, we learned that sympathetic system, when it feels safe is what gives us healthy drive, aggression, forward moving energy. It's what wakes us up in the morning. When we feel safe in the parasympathetic system, in the dorsal branch, that's where the rest and digest happens. So that's where we slow down. So the sympathetic is the acceleration and the parasympathetic is the breaking. Now we're all in all of these states all the time. We wouldn't be 
we would be robots if we were only in one or another of the state. We are humans and this is like a soundboard and we're always adjusting levels, which is why total regulation or dysregulation is never really possible because we're adapting to our environment all the time. Now, when we're under threat, that's when the sympathetic system has a fight or a flight response. And it's where the parasympathetic dorsal branch of the nervous system, the earliest branch, that's where the freeze or the collapse response lives. A lot of what you see out there about the nervous system puts values even on these. Like if you're in the social nervous system, which we haven't gotten to yet, then that's the best. And that's like a green light. And then you're, if you're in the sympathetic, you're in the yellow light of a stop sign. And if you're in the parasympathetic, you're in the red. I don't really look at it that way because I believe that all of these states are extremely functional. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them evolutionarily. It just doesn't make sense. They are definitely what has kept us safe up to this point. And the only work that we have to do is just to be measuring that against the present moment and giving our systems what it needs to go to the next layer of repair. Nervous system regulation, self-regulation, these are words that everyone's gotten keyed into in the public discourse now. And I feel that this is a much more layered understanding than some other concepts that have been popularized. There's actually many different kinds of regulation. There's co-regulation, self-regulation, external regulation. And I've been talking about one called that I've just named, which probably someone else has named before, but I've called it source regulation because self-regulation is what we do inside of ourselves, inside of this individual body in order to soothe ourselves and to bring ourselves into a level of balance where our basic bodily functions, like we can sleep when we're tired, we can have an orgasm when we're having sex, we can go to the bathroom when we need to go to the bathroom, we can digest our food. So it's very rudimentary, but advanced because all of those things I just mentioned, a lot of people have a lot of challenges with those. I'm sure people listening are like, yeah, sleep's hard for me or yeah, it's hard for me to relax and rest when I actually have time to rest. This is part of our human experience. Source regulation to me is a little bit more foundational because before we ever were in a womb where co-regulation begins, co means there are two things. So we can only ever co-regulate with someone else. When we're in utero, we share a nervous system. So we have a nervous system of the parent whose body that we're in and that differentiation happens over time. And we still share that nervous system even after the baby's born. Source regulation is what brings us into harmony with the most elemental rhythm of nature and the universe. And that's primordial. That's, that's before another person is there. And it's different than self-regulation because source regulation could be a part of your self-regulation, but it's more elemental than that. And so I like to bring that to the conversation because it also takes it out of the individualism and that, that the responsibility is on us to get more tools and, and be the better translator of ourselves and all of these things that, yes, we want to do and we are doing, but also there's these other elements that both relate us to someone else, which is imperative. And you know, you and I have talked so much about community and what real community means and how community becomes a resource. And, and here in North American overculture, do we even know what that means? And, and what does that look like? But then we have source regulation. That's this thing that's, you know, 
perceptible in a layer way beyond these other categories. I really love the idea of source regulation. Could you explain just a little bit more of like that source piece? Like what does that actually look like? So there's the way that we can get into the back of our bodies so we can direct our attention. We might say the word sense. We might say the word locate. Those two things are actually quite different. I think our culture is really in the sensing language now, which is a lot different than it was five years ago. There's more capacity to name what sensations we're having. But naming sensations, it's just like you can think your emotions, you can think your sensations. Locating something is a bit different. We all have a nervous system. Right now, you and I can pause for a moment and locate and perceive our nervous system. Our nervous system is made of nerves. If you dissect a cadaver, you will find the nerves. They are physical structures. They are also ethereal structures, but they're not only ethereal. Yogic nadis are ethereal. Chinese meridians are ethereal. Nerves are not. They are physical structures. That doesn't mean you cannot feel ethereal and energetic structures. Of course you can, but it's a different thing to notice. Okay, in my system, where are my nerves? Can I perceive my nervous system? Can I locate it? Can I drop to orient into my nervous system? Okay. Now from there, you can also bring more awareness to the back of your head, the back of your neck, your shoulder blades, your kidneys, down the back, all the way into your pelvis. Back body awareness tends to bring us more into the here. We often are located in the front. We're leaning forward. Our eyes are forward. That's what screens do for us. So there's a lot of incentive to be forward. So then we come to the now. Now, what happens if you unzip the back? And for some people, that's going to be like the presence of your ancestors. For some people, that's going to literally feel like a different kind of a pulse. Our whole system is made of rhythms. We all know our heart has a rhythm. We all know our lungs have a rhythm. But every single organ also has a rhythm. So our body is very literally an astonishing orchestra of syncopation and synchrony. And one cannot be extracted from another. In each of us, those are happening differently. When you go to source regulation, there's a different kind of a pulse. It's a primordial pulse. And it's there to feel. And it would be, it would be felt in the same way. So that if we were in a room... We could sync up our breathing rhythm. We could sync up our cardiac rhythm, but we could also sync up to this more. It's actually a fluid state because the fluid comes before the nervous system. Can you talk a little bit about the long-term effects and even short-term effects of staying in that dysregulated state? So I would say that in general, we have a lot of incentives to stay dysregulated and we have many fewer incentives to stay regulated, especially for high achieving people, especially in a time where the frequency of production is accelerating. So staying in a dysregulated state is basically what we're seeing right now, which is the proliferation and fragmentation, you know, a DSM, a, the diagnostic psychological manual that's just getting 
more and more and more specific to try to capture these things that probably are mostly normal human adaptations to an amount of stimulus that's impossible for a human nervous system to reckon with. So all of the autoimmune problems that we're seeing is a result of dysregulation now, but dysregulation, again, it's not just about what we're doing. It's not just what we eat, how we speak, how we move. Those things are highly impactful, but it's also everything else that's around us. So we are influenced by the chemicals that are in the food that we eat. We're influenced by the amount of noise that's around. So I don't want people to blame themselves because they're like, oh, I'm a mess. And so I must be dysregulated. That's not really a useful way to use the information because we want to have like so much compassion for ourselves. So to call it dysregulation is true, but I want that to be in the bigger picture of what human capacity is. The consequence of being dysregulated is panic disorders, PTSD, irritable bowel syndrome. It's also because of the intense amount of stress that everyone's been carrying and sort of the crescendo that it's been because a lot of the things that have revealed themselves to us about the negligence of how we care for people who are atypical and don't have all the you know, expected resources has just revealed itself even more in the last two years. So we were running up to that anyway. But I want to say now that, you know, dysregulation, some people would also consider that trauma. Dysregulation could be considered stress. Both dysregulation and stress don't have to become trauma. And we all have the capacity for not only healing, but miraculous healing and not woo-woo, throw your faith in one bucket and it's all just about me and my belief systems. No, source healing, a connection to one another and a connection to source in a way that that doesn't mean that we might not need intervention. Sometimes it definitely means we need help. We need help from other people. But trauma and dysregulation are just a part of being a human on earth, planet earth, but healing is also a part of being on planet earth. I really feel deeply connected to this idea that you share in your book about moving from being in a position of prey to being in a position of a hunter. Can you talk a little bit about that? For me personally, in my path, I realized that so many of my personality strategies and the reasons that I wasn't kind of succeeding in a way, actually, in the way that I wanted to is because I was so identified with the prey. And the reason that I figured that out was because I was in somatic experiencing training and they showed us a video of a wolf and a rabbit. The entire time I was cheering for the rabbit, I was nail biting, almost shaking, And then the lights went out when the video was through and they had everyone raise their hand and say, who identifies with the wolf? And in my mind, I thought only absolute freaking jerks would identify with a wolf and 30% of the people's hands went up and then who would identify with the rabbit and everyone else. And then when I saw those 30% of the people, they were people that I liked. 
because my training was relatively small and I knew everyone. And I was like, okay, well, I can't just dismiss these people that actually relate to the predator. And because I was so hyper identified with the prey in every way, like I just went down the line. I was like, wow. Okay. So that's why I was a vegetarian. Okay. So that's why I love underdogs and activism. And like my favorite movies are always the one where there's an absolute underdog and people do everything in their power to fight for the underdog. Oh, that's why everyone thinks my daughter is dominating because I want it to be a democracy and I don't understand that there's a natural hierarchy of things. And it just ticks down the list of like, wow, I'm so much more comfortable in the prey role. And I can't even imagine being in the predator role, number one, because we all hate that word. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of predation, which most people in female bodies have, you absolutely don't want to be that person. I learned not only in that moment, but in many others in my office, when I would just say to women like, hey, do you want to be the wolf and I'll be the rabbit? And all of a sudden, just saying that, they would start to shake like a rabbit and get down and cringe. And they would say, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know I'm acting like this. But just the idea of being a predator already sent them into a prey response. And because so much of my work is around female-bodied people identifying as women relating to medical professionals when it comes to birth or gynecology in relationships and sexuality, I realized, well, if, if we could actually occupy that full spectrum, which is what we need as mammals, then we will automatically inhabit a sense of power, a sense of certainty about what we want for ourselves and our body, the way we deserve to be treated, who's actually in charge of our body. And then when we need help, we can get the help, but we're not just giving in. We're not just letting it all go. We're actually surrendering, but surrendering from a place of power rather than a giving up or a letting go or giving in. I think this is a great time to shift and talk about times, which is a framework that you also unpack in the book, which I think relates really nicely to this idea of not giving up. Because for anyone who's listening who might feel like, I do want to implement this, what does this really look like at a tactical level? I think times is a great is a great segue for that. Times is an acronym. I started with the T, which is thoughts, because that's the one that most of us are familiar with. And it's not to be discarded completely. Some somatic practices sort of go the other way, which is like, don't worry at all about the thoughts. Our thoughts are giving us information. The content of our thoughts are, are conveying to us what state our physiology is in. So there's T for thoughts, I for images, M for movements, E for emotion, and S for sensation. Anybody listening, don't worry. This isn't actually new language. You're doing it all the time already. We are all living in all these channels because we're receiving information from the world. We sometimes don't know which channel it's coming in from or how we're interpreting it. So sometimes we can get these channels knotted up with each other. For instance, if you... On the sensation level, smell would be one kind of sensation. Sometimes, like my mom bought me this perfume for Christmas and I hadn't opened it for like a month. And then I opened it and the minute I smelled it, I filled up with tears because it smelled just like my grandma. And I told my mom, like, mom, did you know the perfume you bought me smells just like Nana? And she said, no. So in that case, the emotion and the sensation channel were just glued together. 
that's okay because actually I could use that to my favor. And if I really wanted to feel my grandmother with me, I could use that perfume and that would be an excellent tool. I think some people do that with different kinds of incense or all different, you know, essential oils. But on the other hand, if that smell is another kind of smell that reminds you of someone that really hurt you. So every time you smell that thing, you're down the road of what that person did and what they said to you and how whack it was and all those things, then that's taking you in a direction you possibly don't want to go. And so you have the chance to untangle that. Times you can use in your own daily life. So you can just notice and you can learn how to change channels. So we want to be fluid through the channels. Some of us will naturally go, oh yeah, I'm a visual person. I get everything in images. That's a great asset. And if that's where you feel that you identify, you just want to know if you're in conversation with someone, and I call it a somatic conversation because we can all learn to have these. It's a way we can get closer to each other and we can get below the content. So those of us who are kind of addicted to content and creating story and making meaning, it helps us get below that to more elemental kind of connection. I could say to you, oh, when you said that, this image came to mind. Does that mean anything to you? And you could say, oh, interesting that you had that image because I actually was just thinking about this thing too. But if you're in conversation with somebody, it helps you to know where they are. So in really intimate settings, like say sexually, sometimes people just think, oh, we're not connected. But it's because one person is in one channel, say sensation, and they're really maybe internal and just focusing on all of the incredible varied sensation. And if the other person's more in emotion or image, like say the other person just really feeling connected or is imagining some frame of a magazine they saw, then you're going to feel like we're not on the same page. But if you could say, hey, I'm in the sensation channel right now. Where are you? And the other person says, oh, I was in imagery. I was thinking about this magazine I saw. Then you could decide, okay, well, do we want to come to the same channel? Like, oh, I'll go to that image with you or I'll go to that sensation or you could just stay in the channel that you're in, but then you will have a deepening because you know where each other are rather than deciding what you thought about the disconnection that you were perceiving because you were perceiving you're not in the same channel. That's so helpful. I think just hearing you describe it brings it to life for me in a completely different way, especially thinking about just communicating with your partner. I recently was talking about just this tool of navigating the five different senses with your partner as a way to engage. But I think, you know, when you are trying to get closer, just asking, yeah, are you in, you know, a visual or thinking place? Are you in a place of sensation? And, you know, what also struck me was what you said about getting below the content or deepening. And I'm really curious about how sound can help mm. with doing that and helping with regulating the nervous system or just bringing you into awareness, which doesn't necessarily have to be regulation because as you said, it's not about being, you know, in the parasympathetic or sympathetic, it's about actually just knowing where you are and understanding how to optimize wherever you are. Can sound help you figure out where you are? I love working with sound and I think sound applies in kind of two different ways. I also just wanted to say on the last subject really quickly that when we're talking about deepening communication, you know, when you're having a repetitive conversation with someone where the same thing keeps coming up, like you always prioritize this over that, or 
um, you never listen to me or th those kinds of things that tend to come up. I or you might find yourself saying the same thing over and over again. I feel so overwhelmed. I feel so overwhelmed, something like that. The way to help someone else with that is you could ask them, well, if I didn't know what the word overwhelmed meant, what would your image be? Or what's a sensation that goes along with being overwhelmed? Because if we're just repeating the same thing, even for ourselves, we don't really have a doorway to move in another direction. We're just in a loop. So the times channel helps you get or help, helps you with yourself or helps you with someone else get you out of that loop by helping you to change channels. All of the things that we call tools were are from earth-based indigenous cultures. So when people dance and sing together just as part of routine, part of daily life, part of just how we are with each other. So sound tends to be part of the ventral system, which is the part of the nervous system that's parasympathetic, but it's from the heart up. I use sound to come out of freeze states. I use sound as celebration, sound from low to high in the body, both in actual pitch, but also in resonance can help you along the energy centers, which are also nerve plexes in the, in the body. I think of traumas as crystallizations of an imprint and sound can be the thing that goes in and light, lightly shakes it so that like if you had a pan and it was crusted at the bottom, you couldn't just get that burnt crust off. You'd have to soak it first and then you would be able to gently get the layers off. Sound works like that. But also, you know, we use this word in attachment language, which is attunement attunement, tune, tuning to someone else. And so sound can also be a way that you're tuning to someone else's system and to your own. I love the idea of attuning to someone else's frequency. And I also am a huge fan of sound therapy. It's, it's really been a big healer. So for anyone who's exploring somatic experiencing therapy or wants to move into it, is it something that can be combined with talk therapy do you need both? Should you do one over the other? I have a lot of friends in my life right now saying that they're pausing on talk therapy. They're finding a lot more value in weightlifting, swimming, walking, moving their body than just continuing to talk about what they're experiencing. That's a great question. I think it really depends on what someone's going through. I also really question one-on-one -on -one environments as our solution to everything because so much of what we're experiencing has happened in disconnection. And I'm not surprised that people are saying, oh, I want to actually just, it's, and, and how sedentary a lot of us are because of our lives, you know, writing books in front of screens and that they're just not as much built in movement and we couldn't even move for a little while. So I am a fan of less is more, but of course that's if we're not in a, an acute state because I feel that our whole culture is about consuming more and doing more and learning more and reading more and listening to more podcasts. And in this age of information, it's not the age of integration. So if you have a great somatic experiencing practitioner, one session a week, that will give you a lot of material to work with and to digest. And our nervous system actually can't integrate that much that fast. So real change that you're going to take with you over time, I recommend choosing one thing. Also, people have been asking me a lot lately, you know, well, what do you do to regulate yourself? 
And it's the most basic things. I've been playing backgammon with my dad. Seems pretty like a weird answer to a question, but that's a lot more helpful for me than lighting a candle on my altar. Not that it's an either or, but I just noticed the more things I do that are tending to my personal life in a very elemental way, making sure that I'm eating food regularly that I want to be eating. I'm out in my garden, which is garden is a real euphemism for <laughs> what the back, my little piece of dirt in my backyard actually looks like, but I'm learning. Uh, so it's also why I teach my classes in big groups because people interact with one another and it gives some traction moving forward. And it also gives a context to this thing of our tendency to believe that everything is a me problem when it's actually a we problem. And so when you come together with other people and you hear other people talking about what they're experiencing and being in a field where we're doing the work together, I think there's a lot of merit and traction to that. I'm really happy that your work is in the world and that you are pulling together all of these modalities. Again, like I said, your work for me even is permission to continue to be a seeker and to gently work towards what feels like the right fit for me. And I think also your work too is definitely permission to rest and get closer with your body versus further away. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kimberly Johnson. If you're curious to learn more, I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Call of the Wild. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.